again from the Forster's Northern Law Podcast. I'm Miri Stickland's Knowledge Development Lawyer in the Commercial Real Estate team. Today, I'm joined by two partners from our residential property team, Head of Department Lucy Barber, and alongside Lucy, Charles Mieville, who has joined the firm relatively recently in February this year. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hi. First time on the podcast for you both, so I'll be gentle. <laughs> <laughs> that would be kind. So we're here today to talk about residential leaseholders looking to undertake alterations and in particular the impact of recent case law on applications for consent where that's not strictly permitted under the terms of their lease. So acquiring a long leasehold interest, which is inevitably the case where um, you're buying an apartment, but can often also be the case where you're acquiring a house, is um, often considered almost as good as buying the freehold. But Charles, in terms of understanding the extent of the physical demise of the premises, what do leaseholders need to just be mindful of? Thanks, Miri. Yeah, there, there, are, there are a number of pitfalls and considerations. And I, I suppose the first point to make is that um, it, it is a confusing system we have um, here in, in, in England and Wales in terms of um, understanding what buying a leasehold means. And it's confusing not just to foreign buyers, uh, but also to, to uh, local buyers who, who perhaps don't understand the intricacies of the system. And although we're, we're primarily going to distinguish between freeholds and leaseholds, it is important to say that actually sometimes freehold properties um, are affected in terms of what the demise is and what the interest is that you are acquiring and ultimately, you know, what you have free reign to, to, to deal with. Obviously, more houses are, are freehold. And where you have the freehold, you generally have an unfettered ability to carry out works without third party consent. But there are occasions where you might need them. Uh, there may be title restrictions um, where you need the consent of third parties. And also uh, there are a number of properties, particularly in central London, that historically were leasehold houses where the leaseholders have acquired the freehold from an estate such as Cadogan or Grosvenor. Um, and on acquiring them, they were then subject to various restrictions that were in the lease. So you often find people are selling their houses, perhaps, and, and don't realise that they needed consent to add on a story at the top of the house or a basement dig or a conservatory at the back. So it does affect freehold. But primarily here, we're talking about leasehold. Um, so the starting point is to understand under the lease where your demise finishes and starts. And usually it's a sort of an internal demise uh, uh, comprising the plaster on the walls and on the ceilings and down to the floor joists. What does confuse people sometimes, and I know Lucy will come on to discuss this, is that uh, alterations um, consents from the landlord are sometimes qualified and sometimes absolute. So sometimes there are complete prohibitions and sometimes you can carry out works with consent. And a leaseholder might rightly think, well, I'm going to take down a wall inside my flat. It's within the side, the flat, and the landlord has to act reasonably in terms of internal alterations. And therefore, it's fine. Um, I'm likely to get consent. The problem comes, however, where, uh, as is typical in leases, structural parts of the building are carved out of a lease. So although you may think you're acquiring the internal envelope of your flat, there will undoubtedly be structural parts to that flat which are not demised to you and which the landlord can therefore say, these are my walls, I do not consent to you carrying out any works um, and can make your life very difficult. Um, so it's very important to understand where the flat starts and stops. Another point to mention, perhaps, is that uh, some properties may have outside space, again, perhaps a terrace, uh, um, some roof, rooftop space, and often rights will be granted to use these spaces. They won't actually be demised to you, although you, in effect, have exclusive use of them. 
they're not demised to you and therefore you cannot consider them as part of the flat in terms of carrying out works and in terms of whether the landlord has to act reasonably or not. And so it is it's crucial that owners and potential buyers come to us to understand where the flat starts and stops and therefore what they can and can't do. And I think I'd probably hand over to Lucy on that in case she wanted to add anything. In terms of looking at the demise, for sure, it's very important to establish what you do and don't own before you start thinking about undertaking works. Um, but the, uh, the, the process of the license for alterations and getting that consent from the landlord is often left, I think, too late by leaseholders and that they don't understand the process or realise how long it's going to take. So quite often we get clients saying, oh, I want to do works next week, the contractor's on site, uh, I just need the licence from the landlord. But of course, there's a process that goes before that. And as, as Charlie, you mentioned, so there are three types of covenants in a lease. Usually there's an absolute prohibition on alterations, um, structural and non-structural. It can be or it can be an absolute prohibition on structural and it might allow non-structural alterations with landlord's consent. Um, in each case, you, you normally see the wording not to be unreasonable withheld if landlord's consent is required. If you don't see that wording, you don't need to worry because uh, the statute implies that that the wording in. So if landlord's consent is needed, they can't unreasonably withhold it. But, you know, first and foremost, you need to look at look at your clause in your lease and work out what part of the works you want to do fall within the requirements of your alterations clause. And once you've done that, I would say it's quite common that, that, that some of your works, if not all, will need landlord's consent. So you need to approach the landlord and they will charge you a fee. They will charge you probably legal fees for, for drafting and preparing the licence. And they will also charge you their surveyor's fees, as most landlords, particularly if there is structural works to be carried out, will want their own surveyor to be inspecting the, the sites and the works to ensure that the structural integrity of the rest of the building is not um, damaged you will have to instruct your own solicitors or I would advise you to instruct your own solicitors you don't have to um, but but certainly where you're, you're getting a license it's part of your lease so it's supplemental to your lease so it's an important document so you should get legal advice on it and you can imagine that process takes a few weeks you know the landlord will draft you a license your solicitor will check it probably make amendments You'll be in discussions with the landlord over what, what hours you can work. So, you know, what part of the day can you can you carry out the works? Most say between nine and five. What you have to do with the common parts, you have to keep them clean and tidy, not to obstruct the common parts and to leave it generally clean and tidy throughout. And so I would say on average, a, a license for alterations and Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say on average, it's sort of three to four weeks. And I would say that's quite quick. Would you agree, Charlie? I'd say yes, that's quite quick. Yes. So yeah, you could be looking up to, to anything between six or eight weeks. So this, as soon as you, you want to do Workshire Flat, you must sort of start that process. There was then the, then the Duval decision, which is uh, really added a complication to the, the whole process for license for alterations. So Lucy, can you take us briefly through the facts of the Duval case and, and the, the decision that was made there? So before, if you had an, an absolute prohibition in your lease uh, against carrying out works, you, you would say to clients, most landlords will take a commercial view when you want to take it, when you want to carry out works, even if you have an absolute prohibition, you, you would talk to them about it and work out uh, a license for, for the works you can carry out. And all landlords would, would normally go, go ahead and grant some sort of licence to, to carry out your works. So, so that's where there's an absolute prohibition. So in Duval, there was an absolute prohibition uh, against alterations, structural alterations in, in the, the tenant's lease. 
and they wanted to remove a structural wall in the basement. And one of the other leaseholders complained. And the basis upon which they they ran their argument that the landlord was that the landlord was in breach of their obligations to them in their lease. So this was because um, the landlord in the leases in this block had covenanted to grant similar leases to everybody in the flat. And also that they would enforce, if required by a tenant, they would enforce the lessee's covenants in another lease. So, for example, if Mr Smith was going to carry out works, structural works, and actually his lease said he couldn't carry out the structural works, Mr Brown next door could go to the landlord and say, right, you need to enforce Mr Smith's covenant not to carry out any structural alterations because you promised to do that to me in my lease. And so the landlord was left in a very difficult position in that uh, he couldn't give the, the consent that the, the owner in the basement needed because he'd been breach of his, his lease to Mr. Brown. So that was, that was the basic premise of the, the Duval decision. And it went all the way to the, the Supreme Court. And I think it's fair to say that, that most were fairly surprised by the outcome of this decision which has left landlords in a very precarious position if they wish to grant leaseholders consent where their lease prohibits uh, alterations. Lucy, I just wanted to ask what are the kind of practical ramifications that you are seeing as a result of that decision? How, how we are sort of practically dealing with it is that uh, in new leases where you have the option of drafting your alterations co- covenants carefully, there's a couple of ways you can draft around it. So don't have an absolute prohibition against alterations in your lease. Always have them with landlord's consent. So it gives the landlord flexibility and the tenant, of course, um, to to grant consent to works. And also you can amend the mutual enforceability covenant. So that that covenant I said that Mr. Mr. Brown was using to enforce all obligations on the tenant's part in the leases. You can amend that to exclude it uh, insofar as it relates to the alterations covenant. So you can say to tenants, yes, I promise that I'll enforce all the lessee's covenants, but not the alterations one, because I want to keep discretion there as to whether or not I want to give consent. And um, so that's how we are uh, advising landlords to, to, to be you know, around the drafting of their leases. And, and what about in respect of existing leases? How do you kind of now deal with an application for consent? Well, so the application to consent is still the same, but you have to, uh, and Charlie, I think, is going to come on and explain sort of the options available to landlords. But uh, one of the one of the things that Duval did say in one of the judgments um, was that leaseholders should be able to prevent uh, works that go beyond routine works. So, of course, that left the question of what, what's a routine work? Um, and we don't have that answer yet. So it's anyone's best guess uh, as what routine works are. I mean, obviously in Duval, it was a, it was taking out the structural wall in a basement. So that was seen to go beyond routine works. But perhaps, and again, there's there's no sort of case law to, to verify this, but perhaps you would say replacing a kitchen was fairly routine or replacing a bathroom was fairly routine and um, things like that. So that, you, that landlords should feel able to give consent to those sorts of works without the fear of their mutual enforceability covenant being enforced. 
I think that's quite an interesting point, actually, Lucy, because it's where do where do a routine works or perhaps maintenance? Where does maintenance stop and where do alterations begin? Because you know, tenants under their leases will be under an obligation to maintain their uh, their their property. Um, but you do have a fair few flats out there that are in a terrible state of repair, and in order to repair them, may require structural alteration to update them. Um, and if there's an absolute prohibition, um, but it could be classed as, as maintenance and repair, um, you're in a, a difficult territory. So it'd be quite useful to be able to point to it being part of sort of routine uh, repair and, and, and sort of put it under that umbrella heading, I guess, in terms of, uh, of pushing it through and, and, and being able to defend it against uh, complaints from tenants if there is an, an absolute prohibition on alterations. Um, and I certainly saw this on one flat recently, an unmodernized flat, where actually no alterations were permitted. It did need structural works. Um, and, and it was a balancing act for the landlords in terms of, of thinking about the commercial implications of granting consent and any subsequent issues with, with other tenants. But I'll, I'll come on to that, I guess, in a moment in terms of what landlords can do. It's interesting, isn't it? Because also, as you say, Charlie, if you want to upgrade, for example, your plumbing system or your boilers, that, 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 that involves putting in new pipe yeah. work, which invariably involves putting pipes through structural walls. And most landlords don't want to prevent, you know, flats being modernised and brought up to date. Um, so, again, they're left in that difficult position it is, you know, they'll probably want to give consent for this flat to have better central heating and put in new services, but the, but the lease might not allow them to do so. I think that's that's true. I, I think it's for everyone's benefit that a lot of these flats are upgraded and, and obviously maintained. And at one point we didn't touch on is, is I think, Lucy, you were saying that where there's an absolute prohibition, obviously you, you, you might historically approach a landlord to consider granting consent. And very often there'll be a, a, you know, a premium proposed for that. So the landlord say, well, I don't have to grant consent, but I will in, you know, in return for you paying £10,000 or whatever it might be. So there is also a, um, sometimes a, a revenue stream for the, for the building in terms of, uh, of money coming in for granting consent. Um, so all of that would would have dried up completely if if Duval were sort of strictly adhered to uh, and, and made a, a building very difficult for a landlord to, to manage in terms of just uh, renovating and maintenance, but also in terms of getting um, uh, income from it as well. So yes, it's there are a lot of balancing acts for them. So Charles, do you want to just talk a little bit more about how landlords are sort of coming to terms with the decision of Duval and dealing with it in a practical sense? Yeah, um, I think it would be fair to say, as, as Lucy has already said, that there was a certain amount of shock uh, at the Supreme Court's uh, ruling um, when it came out. And, and I think it, it uh, resulted in a, in a lot of landlords um, sitting on the fence for quite some time as they decided how they could best deal with it. And I know of a, a certain number of estates where um, applications for alterations started to back up quite considerably whilst uh, landlords um, got comfortable with their position. But obviously, in any active market, it, there are going to be a huge number of applications for alterations at any one time. So it's important that everyone finds a a solution or a, a, a way to work with Duval um, to move forwards and unlock that. Uh, and uh, from my own experience, working on uh, several alteration licenses to alter it, it, it that had a sort of Duval um, angle, uh, the landlord had to consider what liability it was exposed to in terms of being in breach of covenants in other leases in the building. Um, and, and in effect, uh, the landlord 
in one instance came to the, the decision that they needed to have um, a consent or at least a waiver from any kind of liability from all the other tenants in the building that had the mutual enforceability clause um, in, their, in their leases. Uh, so that they knew that they could grant consent for the works without any kind of recourse from other tenants. Um, and whilst that might be practical in a small building with you know, three or four tenants, uh, many buildings in London have uh, tens or hundreds of tenants and it may not be practical. Uh, and another solution that has been proposed is to, to, to look at the, the flats immediately surrounding the property in question above, below and beside and say, well, if they have those provisions in there, let's obtain the, the consent or a waiver from these tenants rather than from every tenant in the building. Um, so that, that, that's the way that landlords are looking at it at the moment. And I, I, I imagine that given some time, we'll come back to a position where actually these licenses are treated in much the same way as licenses under qualified leases. You, you essentially need to look at, you know, what is the risk of any damage to the building? And what is the risk of any liability attaching to the landlord? And it will very much depend on the nature of the proposed works. So I think every case has to be looked at on its own merits and considered, albeit more carefully in light of Duval, I don't think it will be considered very differently to how a landlord surveyor may view the works historically. And I don't know, Lucy, what you think about that. Yes, absolutely. It'll become it'll become the norm, won't it? It'll 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 become part of the process that that you know as a as a lessee that you're likely to have to give an indemnity to the landlord um, for any potential claims the landlord receives as a result of your works, and that 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 if if they the works go beyond what could be described as routine, that you're likely going to have to get the consent of your fellow leaseholders, if not all, um, the, the ones that immediately surround you. And and you'll obviously have to it'll increase the cost because you'll you'll be liable to pay you know, those lessees legal fees in checking checking those consents uh, and also the landlord's additional fees in dealing with those as well. I mean, it, it seems to me that blocks will need to have a look at maybe varying their leases, so doing deeds of variation throughout the building to vary either the alterations covenant or the mutual enforceability covenant or even both, and it. You know, that's going to be a gradual process because getting you know up to 100 or 200 lessees all signed up to a deed of variation takes takes time uh, and you need lenders consent in some cases so um it, but that that's a, that's another way that that landlords could could think about doing it gradually or, or as leases change hands and, and and that they get applications for licenses to assign they can say look we're trying to mend all these leases so it's easier for for lessees to do alterations can you enter into deed of variation but, but yes it, it's going to become duval duval license start are now the new norm uh, and i think each landlord just going to have to work out what what works for them what uh, what questions they're going to ask and what steps they're going to put in place is a mutual enforceability covenant offered as standard in residential long leases or would the landlords actually have to go through a process where they're reviewing almost what the lease terms are to determine who the other kind of occupants are that they might be at risk from? Absolutely. So in each case now where, where we act for landlords, for example, we normally review a handful of them, but certainly the ones that immediately surround the flats is, is the ones we, we suggest you re we check first of all. And of course, if there's an, an obligation on the landlord to grant leases in similar form, you can generally assume that, that they're all going to be the same. But particularly, uh, absolutely, you have to you have to check the leases. You have to check that mutual enforceability covenant. Some leases don't have them. 
then you have buildings where some leases have them and some don't. I've had seen some of those as well. So then you do have to check all the leases. Um, it, it's a it's a bit of a it is a bit of a minefield, really, absolutely. Because if they don't have the mutual possibility clause, you're much better off in some ways as a landlord, obviously not as a tenant. But but you do have to check all the leases, yeah. Thanks both so much for joining me today. If you'd like further news and views from the firm, please head over to our website, forsters.co.uk, or you can follow us on social media. You can take your pick from LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or obviously follow us on all of those. And if you'd like to take a listen to our podcast back catalogue, you can find them all on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequence from loss arising from the use of, reliance on, or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. More than one podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced, or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.